the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Many people claim that the world is coming to an end, that our technologies and the environmental destruction caused by humans will soon become irreversible. Yet new technologies, in particular those related to nuclear power, are giving us a promising outlook on the future of energy. Nuclear power has come a long way, and with the potential of nuclear fusion, we may soon witness a revolution in our power supply. Oh, wow, that would sure be true. Nuclear fusion is what lights up the sun and all the other stars. It could create a huge powerhouse of energy if we can harness it safely. For sure, though there are many people, such as environmentalists, who are wary of nuclear power. Though from what we will explore with our guest today, it sounds like these claims are not warranted. Yeah, they certainly aren't. And our guest today is Robert Zubrin, Dr. Robert Zubrin. He will be visiting with us and talking about new technologies being developed to run our society with nuclear power. My co-host, Mary Jean Harris, will introduce him. Yeah, for sure. Robert Zubrin is the president of Pioneer Astronautics, an aerospace R&D company located in Lakewood, Colorado. He is also the founder and president of the Mars Society, an international organization dedicated to furthering the exploration and settlement of Mars. Formerly a staff engineer at Lockheed Martin Astronautics in Denver, he holds a master's degree in aeronautics and astronautics and a PhD in nuclear engineering from the University of Washington. Zubrin is the inventor of several unique concepts for space propulsion and exploration and the author of over 200 published papers in the field. He has written seven books, including his most recent book, The Case for Nukes, How We Can Beat Global Warming and Create a Free, Open, and Magnificent Future, published in April of this year. So welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. As I was saying just before the show, Robert's one of my space heroes because, of course, he was the author of Mars Direct, How to Go to Mars and Live Off the Land, you know, that sort of thing. And um, he also has written some very good philosophical arguments for the reasons that we should actually be exploring space, going to Mars and that sort of thing. And when the interview goes to podcast on Monday, I'll link to some of his books on that, as well as, of course, his new book on the case for Mars. So as I say, Mary Jean, Robert's one of my heroes. So <laughs> it's really wonderful to have him on. So, so Robert, can you start by telling us how we can use nuclear power to provide clean and plentiful energy to our society? All right. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because the first step in any engineering process is to define the requirements. Now, it's fine to build things right, but you really need to build the right thing. And the entire debate over energy uh, right now is largely being misframed as how do we substitute some alternative power sources for our existing fossil fuel power. Uh, that's not even the right problem to be solving. The right problem to be solving is how do we solve the problem of world poverty, which will entail increasing world energy consumption at least five times. Oh. That is, look, the uh, average GDP per capita in the United States is right now about $60,000 a year. Uh, and it's comparable in a number of other advanced countries. 
Uh, and yet all these countries, including the United States, have some poverty. Uh, the average world GDP per capita is $12,000 a year. Mm. Okay? One fifth of what it is in the United States. And half the world is below average. So what we actually have right now in the world is an enormous poverty problem. And poverty kills. Poverty kills hundreds of millions of people every year, some through outright starvation, a much larger number through the effects of disease on people whose constitutions are weakened through inadequate nutrition. Uh, the, 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 and then those who do not die, they have their lives shortened or otherwise ruined. They're condemned to brutal jobs, boring jobs, lack of opportunity, uh, brutalized social conditions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the lack of education, uh, they are living ruined lives because of poverty. And this is what needs to be solved. And even without any population increase, and world population is increasing, we need, therefore, to increase energy per capita five times. Uh, to even just bring the world to the reasonably good conditions that obtain in the United States, Canada, the better European countries. So you can't do that with fossil fuels, and you can't do that with things that are weaker in their potency than fossil fuels. You should know that people, society ran on renewable energy up till about 1800. That is, it ran on wind, water, and biomass power. Um, and uh, now it has to be said that those sources of energy did a lot. The mastery of wind in the form of long-distance sailing ships, which didn't really occur till about 1500, brought the world together, created a situation where there could be world trade, where inventions in any part of the world could be transmitted to other continents on timescales of a few years instead of centuries, you know, and so forth. Uh, windmills in Europe, which were invented in the 1200s, uh, had the same significance for medieval women as washing machines did for 20th century women, because uh, before the invention of windmills and water mills, uh, the, the girls and women had to spend several hours each morning grinding grain by hand. And this was an enormous labor-saving thing. And uh, for that matter, domestication of animals, which was done effectively in Europe and Asia, but not in Africa, okay, uh, due to tropical diseases and other things, making domestication of animals very difficult, meant that a great deal of what was done, like pulling plows in Europe or Asia, was done by human slaves in Africa, which is why... Africa became the source of the world's slaves as an export product once those uh, opportunities, as it were, were opened to Africa. That's an interesting point. So they had slaves in Africa long before we started to take their slaves. Is that the case? Oh, certainly. And uh, yes, and Islamic uh, uh, overland traders uh, were taking slaves as an export item from Africa uh, before Westerners showed up. But the Africans were slaving, uh, trading slaves among themselves before the Arabs showed up. But the point is, is that these technologies advanced civilization. They they uh, uh, made slavery a less important part of the economy than in places where the only labor available was human labor. And yes, so 
three cheers for wind and water power as well, and even animal power. But by 1800, these were proving inadequate, which is why we went to fossil fuels, which if we had not done that, Europeans, for example, would have completely deforested Europe in, in, in cutting down forests to, to feed uh, nascent industries with wood burning instead of, but they got found coal. And then later on, uh, superior fuels to coal, such as oil. Now, here's the thing. Oil was not a resource till people invented oil drilling and refining and machines that could run on the product. Land was not a resource, actually, till people invented agriculture. Okay, Uranium was not a resource until we invented nuclear power. That is, there's really no such thing as a natural resource. It's only natural raw materials. It is human creativity that turns materials into resources. Now, by going to oil, we greatly lifted the burden that human civilization placed on the environment. For example, we saved the whales. People were hunting whales for whale oil. Okay, by shifting to petroleum oil, the whales were prevented from extinction. Okay, and because we were relying upon a resource which was not just a shifting from wood to coal. Okay, you're going from a resource that is fundamental to the natural biosphere to one that is marginal for the natural biosphere. Now, going from fossil fuels to uranium removes you even further from the natural biosphere in terms of your involvement. You are decoupling. So if you want to preserve the natural, you need to go to the artificial. Mm-hmm. Okay, we need to go to resources that nature doesn't require. Okay, and that is how you protect nature. Now, the whole problem here with the so-called environmentalists is they have this romantic notion that somehow if they live on stuff that is provided to nature, that they are living in accord with nature and being nicer to nature when it's the exact opposite of the truth. The exact opposite of the truth is if you want to uh, be nice to nature, don't use it up, leave it alone. And so here you have people whose creed is they want to have nature you know, be flourishing and so forth and this and that. And their primary preoccupation in in terms of pursuing this is to redirect human society to exploit the resources that nature uses instead of coming up with resources of our own. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing the exact opposite of what they're, what What they're doing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting just to reemphasize something you said. So coal saved the forests, oil saved the whales, and as we move to nuclear, which we're getting denser and denser energy sources, right? I mean, that's that's the overall trend. Nuclear will then save our atmosphere, I guess. They save from pollution. Correct. That and that's a very good point as well. There is an issue with carbon emissions, okay? But actually, the issue isn't warming. Uh, the the and here's the thing. Since 1870, world temperatures have risen by about one degree centigrade. And that's what the UN panel says. And I don't see any particular reason to doubt it. There's uh, some additional evidence that there has been some warming, in particular the expansion of the growing season, um, which is observable in North America. But guess what? That's not harmful. 
Yeah. Uh, first of all, it, 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 it's not really uh, uh, significant. Um, I mean, one degree temperature rise is like uh, uh, a New Yorker moving to Morristown, New Jersey, when in fact, uh, most people that are leaving New York are going to Florida. Um, where they'll experience not a one degree temperature rise, but maybe a 10 degree temperature rise. And um, and yes, and as we've noted, there's a, a, a modest expansion of the growing season as a result of this warming. But the thing that actually has happened that is uh, more a matter of concern is that the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere has increased from 280 parts per million to 420. That's an increase of 50%. So while a one degree temperature rise is only a one third of 1% increase in the world's absolute temperature, the CO2 concentration has increased by 50%. And that's enough to potentially matter. Now, in fact, we've seen some effects of that. And on land, they have been positive. That is the increased CO2 concentration in the atmosphere has accelerated plant growth. And there's no doubt about this. We have very good observations, both from ground-based experiments and, and photo photographs taken from orbit that show that the rate of plant growth on Earth has accelerated uh, by about uh, 20% since the 1980s. Uh, and this, and it's very easy to explain this. We can duplicate it in controlled conditions in the lab. If you increase the CO2 concentration, plants are going to grow faster. This is in accord with the theory of photosynthesis, which is, is very well understood and uh, 97% of all scientists believe in it. Now, the, the but here's the other thing, lest we try to obscure. We have not observed a similar increase in the oceans because the limiting ingredient for phytoplankton growth, that is microscopic plants, which are the basis of the ocean's food chain, is not CO2. It is trace elements like iron, nitrates, mm -hmm. uh, uh, phosphates, things like this. And so what we have is the ocean is getting more CO2, but it can't take it up. And mm -hmm. this is threatening to increase the carbon dioxide content of the ocean to the detriment of uh, shell forming in uh, uh, marine life. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, it's not so bad yet. If we were to increase world fossil fuel use five times, which is what you would have to do uh, to meet the task of raising the world out of poverty, this could be a very serious matter. Okay. Huh. Now, um, so that is why, well, look, all this stuff about going to net zero is complete fiction. The, the, our entire society is based on copious fossil fuel use. And no way anybody is going to take the current advanced sector and reduce it to zero fossil fuel use or even cut its fossil fuel use in half. But what we could do if we introduced more potent clean energy source, which is nuclear, is we could do the necessary increase in world energy production without having to multiply the fossil fuel use. Yeah, now, that's a good point. Now, and, and, I, I, I want to say one other thing. Okay, yeah, I got a quick question though, before you go on. Okay, when, go. You say, when you say plentiful energy, how much, I mean, could we go forever on nuclear power? Uh, pretty much, yeah, you can. Uh, okay, uh, nuclear fuel right now, which is done from uranium ores, which are stuff that is particularly concentrated, several percent uranium, 
the fuel cost is only 5% of the cost of the uh, energy that you produce. And in fact, there are other forms of energy, uh, of nuclear energy, including breeder reactors, which would get 100 times as much energy per unit uranium as we currently get with the pressurized water reactors, or thorium, which is four times as common as uranium uh, itself. We're talking about, you know, we could be multiplying the energy we get from uranium ore itself hundreds, perhaps thousands of times. And then, but there's bigger sources of uranium than current reserves of ore, which no one is really looking for because, as I said, it's so cheap already. Uh, for instance, you take ordinary granite. So, you know, uh, which we have plenty of, okay, we have mountains of it. Uh, it is uh, about two parts per million uranium by weight and eight parts thorium. And since these things are about 10 million times as much energy per unit weight as oil, what this means is that a kilogram of granite rock has as much energy as 100 kilograms of oil. Wow. Uh, wow. And furthermore, if we were to go to fusion power, you have deuterium in, in water. And now you're talking 350 times as much. That is to say, a gallon of seawater has as much energy as 350 gallons of gasoline. Uh, so, yes, we're, we're talking about gigantic amounts of energy. And this, of course, is only the Earth. Um, a Martian water, by the way, has five times as much deuterium in it as Earth water does. And uh, so, you know, there you go. And uh, and there's plenty of other water in the universe. Um, the the now, I, I did want to mention something, which is about this whole program of trying to counter fuel emissions by uh, basically increasing the cost of fossil fuel, because that is the program that has been embraced by those people who are say they are concerned about this issue. Okay, and. Uh, whether they do it through carbon taxes or other things, it, it all comes down to the same thing of somehow increasing the cost of fossil fuel to the consumer. Um, and this has been the program that has been attempted as a essential uh, thrust by the governments of all the most advanced countries since about 1990. Mm -hmm. And they even signed a treaty in 1992 where they would all agree that they would take measures to reduce carbon fuel consumption, basically through increasing its price in ta or taxing it or whatever. Uh, well, guess what has happened since 1992? It's probably gone way up. <laughs> well, yes, the total amount of carbon fuel that we have used is, is doubled. <laughs> okay, so in the face of this initiative to increase the cost of carbon fuel to deter people from using it, the total human use of fossil fuels has doubled, just as it did between 1960 and 1990, and between 1930 and 1960, and between 1900 and 1930, every 30 years, the amount of, of, of fossil fuels, carbon emissions has doubled. And there is a reason why, which is that fuel, carbon, is fundamental to making or transporting any. It's fundamental to the making of food. It's fundamental to the transportation of food. It's fundamental to the making of iron and steel and aluminum and plastics and everything. Okay. And um, so 
human carbon use relates directly to human standard of living in material terms. Okay. And guess what? People don't want to be poor. People want to be able to have more stuff. Okay. And that means that there's this tremendous bottoms up push for people wanting to be able to make use of more carbon one way or another. You know, you improve public health. You're increasing human carbon use because you're prolonging the lives of carbon footprinters. Okay. There's nothing you can do that is good for humanity that will not increase carbon use. And the, the, and so people do want to live longer. They don't want to die and people want to eat and people want to have clothes. Okay. And they want to have more than one shirt. Okay. They want to have lots of shirts and, 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 and so forth. And so, uh, frankly, even the most tyrannical governments understand that one way or another, they have to accommodate this push and preferably uh, be prefer uh, seen as heroes leading it, leading their people to higher standards of living. So uh, yeah. essentially, the program of governmental constriction of human carbon use through making it unaffordable is not only unethical, it's impossible. So there, there is a real problem here, which is poverty, which requires increased energy use. And that would actually turn carbon emissions into a real problem if we were to remain dependent on them. So we got to go. Uh, yeah, for sure. So you did mention a bit about the uh, different um, elements used in uh, nuclear power. Uh, so why would thorium have a greater potential for use in nuclear reactors rather than uranium, which I believe is most commonly used now? Well, first of all, uh, thorium uh, is four times as common as uranium, uh, and uh, and I believe in concentrated forms, even uh, more available. I mean, four times as common just in terms of parts per million. But I mean, look, people were actually using thorium uh, before the nuclear age. It's used as the mantle in kerosene lanterns because it is uh, um, oh. extremely resistant to destruction by heat. Um, so. People were using thorium in the 19th century, not as a nuclear material, but nevertheless as an industrial material. Um, and the uh, so it's more common. Now, there's another aspect, which is that thorium is bred into uranium 233. The thorium itself is not fissile, it's what's known as fertile. That is, it can be bred into a fissile fuel. And Similarly, uranium-238 can be bred into plutonium-239, but which is fissile, uranium-238 is not. But while plutonium-239 can be used in principle, if you do the right things with it, um, you can use it as bomb material. Uh, uranium-233 cannot be used as bomb material. And so if you are concerned about uh, proliferation, uh, resulting from uh, the use, widespread use of nuclear power, the thorium reactor solves that problem. Now, interestingly, that is precisely why neither the American nor Soviet nuclear programs was interested in thorium. Because the early Atomic Energy Commission and its Soviet counterparts, their top priority was creating nuclear bombs. Mm. Um, and so the uh, uh, 
while the, the idea of breeder reactors was already known in the late 40s, um, they uh, uh, preferred to go the uranium route. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me understand this. The thorium is not radioactive or it's not fissile, as you put it. And so as a consequence, you use thorium to make uranium-233. Is that the sequence? And then that's used to make 235 or 9? No, no. The, the, the thorium is used to make uranium-233, which is fueled for a fission reactor. It's fissile itself. Oh, okay. Okay. So you can start a thorium reactor with a certain amount of fissile material, which could be uranium-233, it could be uranium-235, it could be plutonium-239, okay, mm -hmm. just to get it started. Uh, but then the excess neutrons that are not used to carry out the chain reaction, they get absorbed by thorium and they transform it into uranium-233, which itself is then a fissile fuel. Right. I got you. Oh, okay. So we have to go for a break. But after the break, I think I'd love to dig into the topic of thermonuclear fusion, starting, okay. with, starting with you explaining the difference. I mean, many people don't know the difference between fusion and fission. If we can start with that definition, that would be great. So we'll be right back after the break. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. 
Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. We're back with Dr. Robert Zubrin. He's the president of Pioneer Astronautics. He has a PhD in nuclear engineering from the University of Washington. And that is the topic, actually, of today's presentation or today's interview. Yeah, so I'd like to ask, how can we use nuclear fusion to improve our nuclear reactors? Okay, well, uh, all the practical nuclear reactors that have been built to date have been fission reactions. They work by splitting uranium or plutonium um, and from which are very large nuclei into medium-sized nuclei, and in the process, energy is released. Uh, the other way to go is if you can take uh, light nuclei, such as isotopes of hydrogen, and fuse them to make heavier nuclei, and energy is also released in that pro prospect. The, the lowest energy nuclei are actually the middleweights. The lowest actually is iron, uh, which is a, a medium-weight element. And But this is how the sun and all the stars produce their energy. They fuse hydrogen into helium, and then in their last stages of life, they actually fuse helium into carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and even iron. Um, so th th that's how it works. So uh, fusion is more difficult to accomplish than fission because uh, to get two nuclei to fuse, you've got to get them to come together and they are being repelled from each other by their electric charges. Since the nuclei are both positive, they're gonna push away from each other. Now, if you actually can get them all the way together, then nuclear forces take over, and those are much more powerful than electrical forces. But basically, you gotta get them in the door before they're gonna make love, okay? And yeah. the- uh, Sorry, before you go on, just, just a quick question. How does the actual energy compare between nuclear fusion and fission? It's somewhat higher with fusion. Uh, that is, the amount of energy per nucleon in uh, uh, fusion is four times as high as fission. Mm, okay. Is that why a hydrogen bomb is so much more powerful than an atomic bomb? That's one of the reasons. The other is, is that the fuel is actually much more plentiful, uh, so that you can relatively small uh, fission bomb can be used to detonate a, a larger mass of fusion fuel. Mm -hmm. um, OK, 
Okay, but once again, and so, yes, the first thing that was discovered, a lot of energy is needed to make fusion happen. And uh, by the 1950s, both we and the Soviets had a hammer strong enough to hit the fusion fuel with to make it go off. And that was an atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but the idea of a fusion reactor is we don't want to set it off with a series of fission bombs. Yeah, we want to just be sure. having the fusion fuel burning itself in a controlled way. Um, now, the fusion fuel, it has to be very hot to go. Um, and so hot that no solid material can be a solid at that temperature. So you cannot contain it inside of, um, say, a steel vessel or titanium or anything. Uh, like that. The fusion fuel was to come in contact with the wall, either it would vaporize the wall or the wall would simply cool the fusion fuel down to ordinary temperatures and the flame would go out. So either way, they're incompatible. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so the idea, the predominant idea that has been worked on is the idea of containing the fusion fuel with magnetic fields so it never touches the wall. And uh, a lot of work's been done on this. And um, the, the, a variety of concepts were uh, tested. Um, it actually was the Soviets who came up with the first one that produced good results, which was known as the tokamak. And uh, interestingly, they aggressively revealed that to the West. And um, I believe this was because the Soviets thought that Uh, Controlled fusion had no military significance, but it could have economic utility, and they did not have the scientific ability to develop it alone. And so they wanted, they actually tried very hard and ultimately successfully to put the West on the tokamak track, which there's issues with tokamak, but it was a better concept than the ones the Westerners were fixing. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we did finally pick up on that, progress was quite rapid um, mm-hmm. and, and rapidly exceeded anything the Soviets had done. And there was a spirited competition between the Americans, the Europeans, Japanese, and Soviets. Uh, it was a big tokamak derby, building bigger and better tokamaks and, and going to every conference reporting on, here's our latest results, ha-ha, they're better than yours. And and and, and, fa- and next year, we're going to have something even better. So. You know, and then, of course, people would go back and they would work to catch up. And this led to uh, an improvement in results of like four orders of magnitude, factor of 10,000 in, uh, in the ratio of energy yield to energy put in uh, between the 60s and the 80s. And, uh, and if we had accomplished uh, another factor of five or so improvement, uh, we would have fusion ignition. Mm. Um, but what happened was very unfortunate was in the 80s, the bureaucrats leading these various national programs, Americans, Soviets, Europeans, Japanese, got together and they said, this competition is very stressful. Well, instead of having our own programs, why don't we all work together on a single program, which was called ITER, uh, International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. And this took all the competitive drive out of all the programs. And as a result, uh, while 
some improved results continued to be reported into the mid-90s as the existing machines uh, went through their paces. No new, more advanced tokamaks were built by any of the national programs. And uh, basically, results have stagnated since the 90s. And um, it basically, things went to a screeching halt. And the IDA program, uh, you know, look, the U.S. Department of Energy is a very bureaucratic organization. I could tell you stories about it that would either make you laugh or cry, depending upon your personality. <laughs> but the the uh, but compared to the international programs, you know, the DOE, you know, IDA makes the Department of Energy look like Google or Apple. Uh, the, that is a powerhouse of innovation. Yeah, It took either 30 years to even decide where it would locate its reactor. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and they're taking another 20 years to build it. So this has been a 50-year program already without completing it. Uh, incredible. So, so that's the bad news. The good news is that as a result, and I believe it's largely due to SpaceX, Elon Musk, Although Musk has had no interest or involvement in fusion, but his example of the success of SpaceX, that an entrepreneurial organization could do the impossible in space launch, or what the mainstream uh, government-led space organizations had deemed impossible, that he could do it, and he could do it in one-third the time, at one-tenth the cost of the things they had deemed possible, the investors started looking at fusion and say, maybe that's really the problem of fusion. Maybe the real problem is not so much technical as institution. And so we have fusion startups getting funded to the tune oh, wow. of hundreds of millions of dollars. And wow. there's quite a race on right now. And I believe that one of these private fusion companies will achieve ignition well before Eider is ever turned on. Yeah. Well, you know, Jay Lear, who unfortunately passed away, he was the co-host of the show. He passed away in, in January. He thought that we would never have nuclear fusion power. And, and one of the things he pointed to, because he was a Princeton graduate, is their constant issuance of t-shirts, which would say, we'll have fusion power in 10 years. And he said, every 10 years, they'd issue the same t-shirt. When do you think we'll have fusion power actually providing electricity on the grid to power our homes? Well, I think we'll have ignition demonstrated this decade. And I think we will have commercial nuclear power by the end of the following decade. The, the latter issue will depend on something else, though, uh, which is uh, the regulatory environment. Because, uh, you know, Strauss, who uh, is the villain of the current very popular and very good, I must say, Oppenheimer movie, it is the person who said that nuclear power will be too cheap to meter. And that is a, a matter of fun. Uh, right now, mockery off hot nuclear power. The only reason why nuclear power isn't too cheap to meter is because regulators have made it vastly more expensive than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. uh, you can make any technology too costly to be uh, 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 profitable if you have enough hostile regulation. If airlines were regulated, uh, if the FAA was run the way the NRC is run, there would be no airlines. Airlines, people would say, ah, the Wright brothers had this dream of people traveling by air. Now we see it never really could have happened. Um, the uh, Okay, sure. So 
you know, engineers make the impossible possible and regulators make the possible impossible. Yeah. So anyway, that is where um, uh, this thing um, uh, hangs on. And if we maintain a hostile environment towards a nuclear energy, I believe we will have a uh, 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 fusion ignition by the end of this decade done by one of these entrepreneurial companies. And I believe we could have commercial fusion reaching grid customers by the end of the following decade. However, mm-hmm. a second uh, point there on that agenda, commercial fusion, depends not just on technical stuff. It depends on the regulators. Uh, nuclear fission has been aborted. The reason is hostile regulation that has enormously increased the cost of nuclear reactors. And, you know, if the Federal Aviation Administrator was run like the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, there would be no airlines. And wise people today would say, ah, the Wright brothers had this dream that one day people would travel in airplanes from city to city. Now we see it obviously never really could have happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 and regulators could abort uh, fusion power as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I had a professor of nuclear engineering. I did mechanical engineering in university. And he said that the whole, the whole issue of safety, and this is something I hope we can dig into. It's not actually in our list of questions, but I think it's an important issue <clears throat> concerning waste. He said that with a CANDU reactor, of course, which runs with heavy water, he said you could hold a CANDU reactor bundle in your hand safely after only 400 years. So, of course, storing it deep in the Canadian Shield would mean that, you know, it's been stable for millions of years. That would be a very, very safe method of disposal. So, I mean, was he right? Do you think that the waste is a serious issue that would prevent nuclear power from really No, the waste is the non-issue altogether. Uh, The the U.S. military stores its nuclear waste in salt caverns in New Mexico. And there's no reason why the commercial industry couldn't do the same, except for the fact that the so-called environmentalists, in order to wreck nuclear power, have forbidden the establishment of a commercial nuclear waste repository. Okay, mm. so the, the Navy isn't having any of this. They need nuclear submarines, so they say get out of the way, and they have to get out of the way. But the the, the commercial nuclear power industry does not have the same uh, power than its political powers as the Navy does, and so they're being stopped from storing their nuclear waste. Uh, you know, if if this town government said uh, parking of cars is illegal in our city, it would be impossible to park cars. And people say, what is how are you going to deal with cars when you're not driving them? There is simply no way to park a car. Uh, yeah. the, 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 because if you simply <laughs> make it illegal to park a car, then it's impossible to park a car. And if you make it illegal uh, to store nuclear waste in places where it's uh, uh, safe to store nuclear waste, then it's impossible to store nuclear waste. Okay, so uh, we're kind of moving on to a slightly different topic. Uh, why is the idea of finite resources one of the greatest threats to humanity? The reason why the idea of finite resources is the greatest threat to humanity is it sets everyone against each other. Okay, okay. this idea that there isn't enough for everyone. Okay, this is the root idea, which came in a variety of forms behind all the major catastrophes in the 20th century, including World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, the Holodomor, and many others. Okay, if there isn't enough for everyone, then the only question is who gets crushed? 
And since someone must be crushed, someone must be empowered to do the crushing. Okay. And the, uh, and look, you know, there's two solutions that are offered to this problem of there isn't enough for everyone. There's the left-wing version is why don't we all agree to suffer together? And there is the right-wing version is why don't we make them suffer? And guess what? The right-wing version of this uh, 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 solution is always the one that sells the best because people would always prefer to make somebody else suffer instead of them. Uh, mm -hmm. And the so it's really ironic that Malthusianism, uh, which historically uh, was denounced by uh, the, all the serious thinkers on the left, Karl Ma Frederick Engels wrote an extensive refutation of Malthus, which still stands scrutiny today. He was right on every point. Uh, and the, the, you know, Henry George, the reformer, you know, uh, denounced Malthusian. So this is obviously just uh, uh, a, an alibi for uh, enforced uh, impoverishation. Um, you know, um, is, what's the difference between humans and chicken hawks? The more yeah. chicken hawks, the fewer chickens. The more humans, the more chickens. Uh, the, 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 you know, but here you have the left today, so-called left, uh, popularizing Malthusianism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Hitler, Hitler said, he said, the idea that we can have perpetual plenty and prosperity through science, he said, is a Jewish plot to uh, uh, take away the people's belief in the necessity for war. Huh. Okay. Now, okay, it's not a Jewish plot, but it does take away people's belief in the necessity for war. And guess what? The necessity for war or the putative necessity for war is the chief prop justifying tyranny. Tyranny justifies itself because it claims that war is necessary and so we need strong uh, dictatorial leadership, okay? And then the war is shown to be necessary because there aren't enough resources for everyone, so we have to take our share or prevent them from taking our share from us or what have you, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, once again, the laws of existence require uninterrupted killing so that the better may leave, may, may, may live. Okay. The laws of existence require uninterrupted killing so the better may live. Germany requires living space. This was all absolute nonsense. Germany didn't require living space. Okay. Germany today is smaller than the Third Reich. It has a larger population and a vastly higher standard of living. Why? Not because they won the war and were able to kill people and steal their cows. They killed a fair number of people and stole their cows, but uh, they weren't able to keep doing it. But even while they were doing it, it didn't increase their standard of living at all. Because guess mm -hmm. what? Food doesn't come from land. It comes from farmers. Okay. The, um, hey, it's uh, killing farmers. They, they actually created a famine on themselves, even as they conquered additional lands. No, Germany has a higher living standard today than the Third Reich because of the advance of science and technology, which has been a global project contributed to by virtually the entire human race, including, for sure, Germans, okay, but also many people that the Germans were trying to exterminate. And mm -hmm. had they been successful, they'd be vastly poorer than they are today. Uh, mm -hmm. But look, but this idea that there isn't so much to go around has the uh, appearance of self-evident truth to people who haven't thought it through. And, and I know today, 
that there are people in high positions in the American national security establishment, and I've spoken to them, who believe that war with China is inevitable. Why? Because there's 1.4 billion of them, and if they all start driving cars like Westerners, there won't be enough oil in the world. So obviously, we're going to have to crush them. And you can bet your bottom dollar that there are people in Beijing who think exactly like them, but are looking at the problem from the opposite side of the chessboard. Okay. Okay. And if mm -hmm. this kind of thinking is allowed to prevail, there's going to be a third world war. And we are in a pre-war situation. And but it's insanity. Okay. It's insanity because human creativity is capable of enormously expanding the world's resources. We can expand the resources here on Earth through nuclear power enormously, because if you have enough energy, you can keep rearranging elements. I mean, we, we, now, we haven't used up any iron or aluminum in all of human history. We've just degraded it from iron to iron oxide or so forth. These transformations can all be reversed if you've got the energy to do it. Uh, so we don't actually use resources. We cycle resources. All resources are recycled. But the question is... Uh, how fast can you recycle them? You got to have the power to mm -hmm. do it. So, so, so it sounds to me like use of much more nuclear power would give us not infinite resources, but a great deal more, and would be actually one of the ways to avoid war. Yes, because the, the source. Look, we are not endangered by there being few resources. We are endangered by people who believe that there are too few resources. We are not endangered by there being too many people. We are endangered by people who think there are too many people. Okay. Yeah. And that's why this is the answer. Okay. And the question of finite or infinite is academic. If something can go on and on and you can never reach the end of it, it's effectively infinite. And that is what nuclear power is. Mm-hmm. So uh, could you tell us a bit about your work in developing a nuclear rocket engine that uses CO2 as a propellant? Okay, when I was at the uh, Martin Marietta Company, which is now Lockheed Martin, I was an engineer there, uh, and I, I came up with a concept for a vehicle for exploring Mars. Now, nuclear rocket engines or nuclear thermal rocket engines had um, been worked on a lot in the United States in the 1960s. And there they were using the fact that you could use a nuclear reactor to heat hydrogen, which is the lightest um, chemical, to uh, very high temperatures and exhausted our rocket nozzle. And because it was so light, that is hydrogen molecule has molecular weight two compared to say water, which is 18 or CO2, which is 44, uh, the, 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 any uh, uh, chemical at a given temperature, if you expand it on a nozzle, it will go faster in proportion inversely to the square root of its molecular weight. Um, so then I guess um, the water vapor, which is 18, hydrogen is one ninth of that. Therefore, it would go, the exhaust velocity could be three times as much. So, and water vapor is what's produced as the exhaust from, say, a hydrogen or oxygen rocket. Mm -hmm. um, and so you could get three times its exhaust velocity, or certainly at least twice. And the so just before, this, you, before, you, before you go on, if you have greater velocity but a lighter uh, material that you're throwing out the back, would you actually get an increase in thrust? 
uh, the amount of thrust depends upon the rate at which you're using the material. Uh, mm. But the, from the point of view of the rocket engine or the rocket engineer, um, having more thrust per unit weight of propellant, which is known as specific impulse, it's sort of equivalent to mileage in cars. Uh, that is how many miles to the gallon you're going to get. Uh, the issue of thrust, which is like pickup, how fast can you accelerate? And mm -hmm. that can be an issue in certain kinds of rockets, such as electric rockets, which have very low pickup. But a nuclear thermal rocket could have acceptable pickup. Um, so, but anyway, but the, anyway, the point here is they were going for high specific impulse through nuclear rocketry. I was looking at it from a different point of view. If we want to explore Mars, we need mobility on Mars. Okay, so we need to have some propellant that we can get from Mars. And the easiest propellant to get from Mars is CO2, because that's 95% of the atmosphere. You can acquire it anywhere you go by running a pump. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if we use CO2 as the propellant in a nuclear thermal rocket, it would not get a terribly high Specific impulse actually gets about half the specific impulse of a hydrogen oxygen rocket. But the advantage is, is that the propellant is available everywhere. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you can have uh, a thoroughbred racehorse that you can go much faster than a mule, uh, but it has to eat the best food, um, whereas the mule can eat any scrub that's around you. And to a prospector, second could be far more useful. Um, so I worked on this concept and I actually got my doctorate working on this concept, which was uh, called the nuclear rocket using indigenous Martian fuel or nymph. And, uh, because it's a rocket that could hop around Mars, acquiring new fuel each time it lands. So it had unlimited global mobility. And yeah. that's my concept for uh, a Mars exploration vehicle. Wow. So do you think we're actually going to do that? Well, I think Martians will do it someday. Uh, I, I think humans will settle Mars, and I think they will settle in many places on Mars because there's no one place that has everything, and there'll be a need to have trade between cities, um, and it will take a long time before you've got railroads in place. Uh, so flying is the best way to go, and the most economical flight vehicle is one that can be refueled for free. Mm -hmm. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this last quick question. When do you think the first humans will walk on Mars? <laughs> when will humans walk on Mars? Well, if SpaceX is successful, I believe we can have humans on Mars in the roughly 2030 timeframe. Uh, if, if they are unsuccessful, which could happen, uh, Musk takes many risks in many spheres including not only SpaceX, but many other ventures and could get into trouble in any number of ways. Um, so either SpaceX itself could have a dramatic failure that brings that project to a halt, or Musk could antagonize the securities regulators and they could come in, a lot of things that can happen. As you know, he's involved in many things uh, or he could become simply too diverted by these other things uh, like Twitter uh, which I do not believe has been helpful. Uh, the, 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 if, if he should fail, then uh, it will take longer. There are, but it will still happen. That is, Musk has proven the value of entrepreneurial space. 
as a consequence, he's being copied. There are at least five companies in China that are trying to duplicate the Falcon 9 right now. And one of them is going to succeed because laws of engineering are there for everyone to Mm -hmm. exploit. There's also a rocket lab, a New Zealand company, that is creating a vehicle comparable to the Falcon 9 um, and uh, called the Neutron, which can fly within a couple of years. So they're a bit behind him, but but he's proven his point. And so even if he should fall, someone else is going to pick up the banner that he's carried this far. But it would add about another decade to the schedule. Yeah. Well, let's hope he does succeed. I want to live long enough to see that first step on Mars. That's for sure. Uh, So, yeah, our guest today has been Dr. Robert Zuber and a PhD in nuclear engineering. Nuclear has been the main topic of our discussion, although it was always fun to end off with a discussion about space. You know, the final frontier. It's where we want to go. (laughs) So this is Tom Harris and my co-host, Mary Jean Harris, signing out from the other side of the story. 